Hey, friends. This week's episode is one from the vault, so to speak. Uh, We actually recorded this last Lent last year. And in the process of recording, we had some technical difficulties and some of the recording from mine and Mitch's mic uh, did not save. And because of that and because some of those audio difficulties, it made it kind of a bear to edit. And that meant that it just got punted and stuck in the vault. But it is too important of a conversation to leave there. Um, And you'll hear from our really awesome guest that uh, her book has just come out. And so this seems like a really good time now that the book is finally out to, you know, conquer the beast and pull it out of the vault and, and send it out to you all. So please, you know, bear with us. Mine and Mitch's audio is a little bit rough at times, um, but Erin Jean has wonderful things to say and sounds great. Um, And I hope you really enjoy this conversation. Like I said, we recorded it last Lent, so you'll hear references to the season of Lent and some of the Lenten readings. Um, But now we're in the season of Easter. We're in the season of joy. And it might feel a little weird to be thinking about some of the Lenten themes right now, but I hope that this is an opportunity for you to reflect on how Lent and the practices of Lent and the practices of repentance might be the gateway into your joy. So sit back and enjoy. In the Fields. Hey friends, welcome to the In the Fields podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm one of the priests here at St. Martin's. I'm Mitch. I'm the other priest here at St. Martin's. And we have one of my very favorite people in the whole world on today. Uh, welcome Aaron Jean Ward, the Reverend Aaron Jean Ward, um, who is a fabulous priest and a recovery coach and does spiritual work around sobriety and, and these sorts of things. Welcome, EJ. Hey, y'all. Uh, what a thrill to be with you. Uh, thank you for having me. Oh. I'm the new one in the, in, in, in this relationship, and we we had you on for uh, I guess it was a Wednesday night. Uh, it was a youth parent gathering. A youth parent gathering, and so um, and and in which I came late because I'm just always late, and so I. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it was such a joy to be with your people to hang out with some of your parents and talk about. We talked about holidays and just how to navigate that through a lens of self-love and 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 care for ourselves. Um, I, uh, if you're listening, you can hear how I talk, which might tell you that I am from the deepest deep of the South. Um, I'm from Alabama, born and raised there, and um, ended up moving to Austin, Texas to get my Master of Divinity and uh, left Austin to move throughout Texas a little bit. So I moved to Waco, then moved to Dallas, then lived in Oklahoma for a couple of years and uh, moved through different parishes, uh, living into the vocation of being a parish priest, and then um, ended up deciding to quit drinking. That was a huge spiritual and personal shift in my life. And it was in that decision that I felt a real uh, calling into blending both my spiritual work and also the passion that I have for what it means to heal through changing our relationships with alcohol. I really understand that healing process 
for me as being integrally related to the healing ministry of Jesus Christ. And I also think that that healing ministry is extended to all people, regardless of their religion or, or what they believe. So I love being able to work with people both inside the church and outside the church, because I just think that should be extended to all people. And it was um, when I decided to get sober, I actually uh, left parish ministry and was able to go work for a healthcare startup focused around recovery. And that's where I got that experience. And I was a recovery coach facilitating both group calls and one-on-one coaching. I was a content writer. I ended up being a program lead for our intensive program. So I really learned a lot about the recovery process and how that can be supportive of people. And so now my work is a private practice in which I have spiritual direction and recovery coaching. I have a course that helps people blend uh, discernment practices into their relationships with alcohol. And there are other facets of my work as well, but it really all revolves around the intersection of recovery and spirituality and what it means to heal. And you have a book coming out? I do have a book coming out. It's <laughs> a plug-in. Yeah, one. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, all of these different things I do. Oh, and also. Um, yeah, I have a book titled uh, Sober Spirituality, The Surprising Joy of a Mindful Relationship with Alcohol. Uh, that's big news. I just found out the title this week. So y'all are getting it like hot <laughs> off the press. Um, and I'm writing that with Brazos Press. And I'm really looking forward to trying to offer an understanding of what this work could look like that lives outside of really systematic formulas. Because again, I think discernment is really primary in the work that I do. And in my spirituality, the great thing about discernment is it doesn't have an answer when you begin. You get to move into step-by-step what it means and it has a real faithfulness to it. You're trusting in wherever it's leading you. And I think that as I work with more and more people, people feel really encouraged that they can trust themselves in the process to learn more about themselves and their minds, bodies, and souls. I love that. Something that I've always appreciated in the couple of years I've gotten to know you out and about in the church is when you talk about discerning sobriety, that that's not, I've never heard you say that that's a one size fit all. Everybody must be totally you know, cold turkey sober right away and can never, ever do anything again. But that discerning your own relationship with alcohol is a a personal thing and is going to look different for everybody. And even just hearing you like, you know, vaguely talk about that on your Twitter um, has changed the way that I look at my relationship with alcohol and has helped me kind of put in place some some decisions and some patterns and some boundaries around mm. how I use it in my life and, and a variety of other things too. Um, and those, those kinds of coping mechanisms. So I'm just like so grateful for your ministry and it, um, but I'm really glad that this worked out that you're coming on at the beginning of Lent. Cause I know a lot of folks in our parish right now are using Lent as a way to explore you know, some of these different things, like maybe you give up alcohol for a season or maybe you give up sugar for a season or um, kind of intentionally fasting from some of these things that we're discerning around. Um, Well, when you were talking about the gray area, you know, one of the reasons that I I hang on that so 
find that so important is because I really needed it. Like when I was looking into my relationship with alcohol for a really long time, I thought it was black or white. I thought it was all or nothing. It was like, I'm going to either quit drinking and never drink ever again and feel like I don't have friends and a social life and all of these parts of of my life, or I'm going to keep drinking the way I currently drink. And whenever that was leveled against me, I just always chose to keep drinking because it's what you know. You know, you choose the, the, the challenge that you know. And it was only through the invitation into letting that be part of it, right? Like, what if that was part of the process? What if, what if it wasn't all or nothing? And what if we got to figure that out as we go and trust the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit's leading us into something. And so, yeah, my work is really, really centrally focused around, you know, the language I use is I work with people who want to change their relationship with alcohol in any way. Because the idea of even a cold turkey quit actually has health ramifications. Um, withdrawal is deadly. And so when I'm working with a client and they say, I, I want to quit drinking, um, I, I ask them, I'm like, tell me, and I ask very compassionately, I'm like, tell me what your current amounts of alcohol are, you know? And if someone comes in and says, you know, I drink about a bottle a night, which by the way, that's actually really common. So you might hear that and think, "Woo!" but no, that's very common. Mm -hmm. But if they say, yes, I'd like to quit. My response is, you know, if you want to quit today, I'm never going to tell you not to. But if you're asking me for how to work this process, I work with people typically on a four week scale. So every week for four weeks, and they can always then get a second package, right? It's not like it ends there. But I say, okay, so that's the goal. And we have four weeks to get there. So what if this week we didn't drink two nights a week, right? Like tapering people into that because there are medical and health ramifications of cold turkey. And it also allows them to sort of move into that and gain wisdom and notice, oh, there was some tension around that night when I didn't drink. And then the question is, let's talk it out. Like what, what was so tense? What were the triggers and then let's put care around those triggers because that approach, I think, allows people to actually really get to the goal, right? It allows them to actually get to a place where they're addressing the underlying challenges that are that are exacerbating this, uh, this part of their lives. And so, again, I really needed that. And that's why it's, it's something I'm really passionate about. I'm also really informed by harm reduction. And harm reduction is not about forcing people into a decision to not do anything. It is about acknowledging where harm is and saying, how can we reduce that, right? Like, how can we just add some care to that, add some compassion to that? And um, one thing that I am really, really passionate about is shame reduction because I did the um, Certified Daring Way facilitator training with Brene Brown and her team years ago. And shame exacerbates the reasons that we want to numb out. And so when we have an experience in which maybe the um, results of our drinking have led us into shame, if we feed that shame, it will most likely send us back into the behavior that has made us feel that way. And so what I try to do with clients is stop that shame cycle, right? It sounds crazy at first, but like if you wake up hungover in the morning, what can you do to care for yourself? What can you do to say, I am still beloved, you know? I cannot, I should back up. One of the things that is really powerful for me and was powerful for me in my recovery 
was um, I would have these memories of things I did when I was drinking that did not bring me joy. Uh, They brought me extreme shame. And I would stop and I would place my hand on my heart and I would say, I cannot go back, but I can move forward differently. Right? I can't fix that. I'm not going to go back and not be who I was five years ago. But I do have the ability to love myself right now in the in the confidence that that love for myself right now is going to lead me into something different. And so those are just some things that I think are really central in the process of what you illuminated as being um, something that that you noticed and found helpful. I, I love that you brought up Renee Brown. Her um, podcast with Dak Shepard, where they talked about their battles with alcoholism was, for, I mean, just wonderful for me. And they, they spoke a lot about shame. And um, it, it it's an interesting thing. I, it, will you define for us sort of the difference between that, that you see sort of shame and then, but also then the legitimate need for repentance? Just saying, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, repentance is an interesting word in this context, because I, in in a lot of ways, resist the idea that um, having a challenging relationship with substances is inherently something that's sinful and something that needs to be repented of. And the reason I get into that is because um, there's lots of different models of addiction. And one of them is just very clearly like socio realities, right? Like if you've had a trauma history in which someone has enacted violence against you, or if you are a consistent recipient of racism or uh, anything like that, uh, yes, you might be choosing to cope in a certain way, but your life is worthy of coping, right? So really primary, I would say one of the first things I do with everyone I work with is destigmatize coping. Uh, coping is a part of being alive. It's nothing to be ashamed of. However, people will come to a point, usually if they're working with me, where they say, I don't like how I cope. And so what we do is we change how we cope. Now, repentance in some ways can signal not necessarily personal sinfulness or the idea that a person has like done something wrong, but distance from God, right? So that's the language I talk about a lot with people in terms of repentance is I feel distant through this, right? And what I want is a greater closeness with God. And so I'm repenting in that, in the sense and spirit of that. And the other thing about repentance is if we're going to put it in the language of um, Brene Brown is repentance is, is more related to guilt, And she sets up a very different definition between shame and guilt. She says, guilt means I did something wrong. And that can actually be motivating. It can help us say, that behavior was not ideal. And now I have the wherewithal to change it. Shame says, I am wrong. I and my identity and my personhood are wrong. And that sends us into that negative spiral, right? So I certainly would elevate that like repentance is like guilt, which is motivating. And when I work with people, you know, we're not going to say it it was great that you drank to a point that you felt like you didn't love yourself because that was not good for you, right? And the question becomes, you know, how do we take away the idea that you and your identity are the problem? How do we destigmatize your coping and then say this becomes a motivator, right? I was working with someone um, just the other day and it was all about shifting it. 
right? Because I tell people all the time, I quit a million times out of shame. And the time I quit that stuck, it was because I loved myself and wanted a deeper joy in my life. Because when you quit out of shame, you're exacerbating the things that made you want to escape. And so when I work with people, I really want to help them shift to your question, right? Shift out of shame and shift into that place of Uh, to use the understandings of repentance, like, I don't like what I did, and I want to live differently, and I want to receive absolution and the beauty and and a reminder of the love of God that then propels me into a different type of life. So I don't know if that's helpful, but that's just how I think about it. It reminds me of, um, especially in right one, but we get it in other prayers during this season, where like, every time we say a prayer of repentance, or, you know, it's, the things we've done and the things we've left undone or whatever it is. The next clause is always something about, but God, you are more merciful than we can understand. Or like you are unconditionally loving of us. And so please keep doing, you know, like, yeah. But I I find myself and I found myself for, you know, decades in the Episcopal church. Now you get hung up on the, like the things that I've left undone and then your brain almost pauses and, misses the next clause even if you're saying it out loud and so much of what i hear in your work is that that repentance is turning toward back toward god and then being able to receive that mercy and that love which is something that shame doesn't really let us do yes exactly and the other thing is like repentance is good actually you know to use our like twitter language like it's good actually like repentance is beautiful (laughs) it's the reminder i think repentance is the reminder of the grace of god that precedes and follows us and that is actively forgiving us in the moment of our transgression right like I think it's already happening in us in the moment that we are choosing or making a mistake, whatever, that God's grace is already receiving us in that. But repentance is the moment in which we get to be reminded of God's love for us. And there are different definitions of repentance and beliefs around that. So that may not be something that resonates with everyone. But yeah, I think like it's good to be able to feel that response. And I'm not um, I'm not opposed to any of that language in that. I just am very, very aware that sort of that can lead into people who struggle with substances are sinners and they just need to repent and get right with God because they're living in ways that are just not right with God. And that ends up being um, something that is a exacerbating of shame, right? Because we're not saying you made a mistake. We're saying you are a sinner. We are giving them an identity. And the thing about shame is that shame is an identity. It's not I did something wrong. It's that I am wrong. And so when we project identities on people and say you just need to get right with God, getting right with God is 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 good, actually, again. But there's a lot more that happens in this process. I mean, figuring out how to change your relationship with alcohol means looking into your life very differently. It's also important for me to always mention that um, part of what is happening when a person has challenging relationship with alcohol is just neurobiologically what happens when a body has ethanol in it. So again, to move away from stigmatization and to say part of this is just what's happening in your biology and how can we address and change that as well? Sort of shifting gears, one of the things, and so I was a priest for six years in New Orleans. And, um, you know, I talk about a place with alcohol 
it, I mean, it truly does flow. Yeah. Um, but it was, it, when you skip a Sunday during, uh, you know, the program year, because there's literally a parade going by your church and no one can get there. Like it's a, it's a different game. Um, but there's a reading coming up in the, uh, in the lectionary. It comes up every year, right after, um, right after Easter, the Pentecost reading where it's an ax and the disciples come downstairs and start speaking in different languages. And there's sort of one of the great lines in scripture where Peter says, we're not drunk because it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Um, and in Episcopal churches, particularly um, at the church I was at in, in New Orleans, you could hear the laughter as soon as that was said, even in the reading, you could hear the laughter it sort of start at the back of the church and work its way forward like a wave. And there's an interesting piece of the Episcopal church that really sometimes drives me nuts, which is the Wiscopalians and, and sort of, we, we have culturally a laissez-faire, if not just dismissive attitude towards alcohol and alcoholism. And I'm, I'm very concerned, um, sort of alcoholism in our pews, but also in our brother and sister clergy. Um, and, and so uh, can you talk about your work and sort of how your work is, is, is addresses that? Yeah, I mean, it is a it is a frustration we share. So let us bond over that frustration. Um, you know, on a really personal level, it has put me really distanced from the church. I mean, I really struggle with what it would mean for me to be reconciled to the church, given that part of our identity. Um, I'm still a priest in good standing, and I still do work in the church, but there are reasons I don't serve full-time in the Episcopal Church, and it's in part because of the culture that we've created that is not compassionate. And, um, you know, the jokes are not helpful. They are ways that we prop up parts of our identity that are damaging and harmful. And my work is about reducing harm, right? And I think, you know, I have a whole chapter in my book, and I don't know if the title will get changed when it goes to publication, but it's just why being a whiskey paleon didn't work right? Like all of the ways that that identity actually fed into why it was incredibly difficult for me to quit drinking. Because when your identity is staked on something and it's staked on something you care about, it means that if you change that part of your identity, it feels near impossible. And so when you're a person who is in a place that identifies itself with drug use and you want to no longer do that drug, it shouldn't feel like that is at tension, but it is. And I, I really worry about the fact that when a person wants to change their relationship with alcohol, church should be able to be the first place they go. And yet what I'm learning through my work is that people do not feel like they can go there. Um, I would I can't believe how many DMs I get from people on Twitter and other things who reach out who feel this way about the church and really feel like the church is, would be a really scary place for me to talk about the fact that I want to change my relationship with alcohol. So I do believe that a really radical shifting of the way that we understand the church is necessary in order for us to really be a place of healing, especially given how truly widespread this need for healing is. I mean, 
In 2018, the World Health Organization did a whole report globally on alcohol and named it at epidemic levels. And that was prior to the pandemic, where drinking only went up. And so we really do have like a global health crisis on our hands. And what I would really like is to be able to see a church that renounces the jokes and renounces the ways that we are trying to not address this and instead truly becomes a seat of healing for people who are looking for healing and who will find it. But will they find it inside the church? And it would be, I think, at a great loss for us to continue to really not be a place in which we can be that for so many people. And I do agree with you, Caitlin, that so many churches do host AA meetings, and that's amazing, and we should keep doing that, right? Like, I'm all about hosting recovery opportunities, but I also think we should take recovery out of our basements and place it on our altars. Give it pride of place. I mean, really honor the fact that tons of people in your congregations are struggling, right? Statistically, we know that tons of people struggle with this, and so that means there are people in your pews who are actively struggling with this, and would they feel like they could go into the church and talk about that? Um, In some places, sure. In other places, no. But I would hope, given what we believe, that we could universally become a place that is healing for those who seek it in this regard. I love that image um, of putting it on the altar, especially because and, you know, I, I know where this comes from, and it certainly has its place in in recovery and discussions around asserting alcohol, but there's definitely a perception that you're not allowed to talk about it as a problem until you hit, like, quote-unquote, rock bottom in some way, however you might define your rock bottom. But that there are a lot of other places in somebody's, you know, journey where they might stop and, and wonder about their habit. or conversely a lot of ways that like the church or other parts of our culture have um, made it a joke or made it a part of the culture so that you don't look at it as something that might you know be worth looking at i'm thinking of the number of um like for some reason the algorithms right now are giving me like all of the mom and baby videos don't get me started even though the wedding hasn't happened yet i don't know it's a whole thing. But there's so much of like a wine mommy culture that shows up in those videos and like whatever the little scripted tumbler the mom is holding is or, um, you know, what she does when her kid is having a tantrum and then she like grabs the the bottle of whatever. Um, the but, martini play date book. Yeah. You know, there's so many things that are just built into like, oh, this is how you should be doing it. This is how you should be coping. Um and this is fine because, look, everybody's doing it and it's funny. Um, and we've got the merch. And so it's just such a beautiful image to to think about. If we're bringing everything else to God on the altar when we show up on a Sunday, why wouldn't this be one of those things, too? And it doesn't. you don't have to wait until you're at the point where, you know, your recycling bin is overflowing every week. Yeah, I'm super passionate uh, about my belief that recovery does not have to be crisis care. Imagine a world where we were able to bring discernment and openness into this uh, before a person hit rock bottom, right? I mean, one of the things I talk about quite often is like, first of all, I do not feel like I hit rock bottom. 
Um, I also don't self-identify as an alcoholic. Um, I kind of would do the assessments online and it was always super gray, but it didn't matter because what mattered is I didn't like my life, right? Like you can be quote doing well in the eyes of the world and also not be happy. You can also in the eyes of the world be not doing well and be deeply joyful. And so the world's ideas, especially within Christianity are not what we're after. We're after an abundant life. And I looked into my life and was like, this is not what I desire for myself. And I made a list of things that I wanted for myself. And it wasn't even related to alcohol at the time. But I was like, these are the things I want for myself. And I looked into it and I thought, pardon my French, but oh shit, I think this is on the other side of sobriety, <laughs> right? Like, I think I have just figured out for in the way that the Holy Spirit speaks to me, I think I'm able to look in this list and think, I think this is on the other side. And that became the way that I chose to quit drinking in a way that loved myself and in a way that led me into an abundant life in Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, what if, what if it became so normative that we look into our relationships with alcohol like we get a physical? What if it was just that this is one of the ways that my body needs attention, the way that when I don't feel great, I go to the doctor. And that's really my hope for this is that it just becomes really, really normal. And do not get me started on like wine mom culture because it's literally destroying people. <laughs> like people are in my coaching practice who are moms and they're like, I just want connection. I just want friends. I just want to be able to connect with other people who are going through the same difficulties of parenting with me because parenting is difficult, but I don't know how to enter that space and not drink. And um, if we're going to be critical of that, I think we should also acknowledge that, that same idea, the same idea, all I want is connection, all I want is to be able to be in community, but I don't know how to enter that space and not drink is something people feel about the church. And the other thing is just I think about health and wellness groups. I mean, I've tried to go to yoga, but it's wine and yoga. And it's just we have insidiously put this around connection. And connection is a human need. It is not something that we get to opt out of. And so obviously, if our culture, including our church, has deeply interwoven drinking with connection, you're going to see a lot of people who struggle with it because a lot of people want connection because they're human. <laughs> and the interesting other side and sort of continuation of wine, sort of wine mom culture, that my son came back from high school the other day, having just done one of the assessments that those the school psychologists had come in and, and done a school-wide assessment for the upper school oh. on drug and alcohol use. And the results, I guess I, they shouldn't be shocking because I was a high schooler, um, but they were still enough to make you pause and take a really deep breath when you start reading that by the time mm -hmm. kids are seniors, oh, you know, in some cases, 80% of them have tried um, alcohol, uh, the huge number with drugs. And, you know, it, people, children uh, do what they see and... Um, it, how insidious this cycle can become. Um, you know, if, if a play date is also with alcohol and parents sitting and, and having a cocktail, then what are, what, that's what kids are going to think is okay. If dinner every night is three or four glasses of wine, like, yeah. 
I would just add that one of the other real challenges I see with my coaching clients is just that as they have gotten older, their family has become a drinking family and it's become normative that like parents drink with the kids and they've slid into almost like drinking buddy relationships with their parents or their siblings. And so then it feels like the decision to quit drinking almost feels like I'm leveling myself against my family and the amount of people who feel or are directly criticized by their family when they choose to cut back because the culture of the family has become, we drink, that's our identity. And the tension there becomes, but I love my mom, but I love my dad, but I love my sibling. And so now I feel like my decision to change my relationship with alcohol might question that most beautiful, intimate, foundational relationship. And that, again, becomes something that can feel near impossible. As we think about this and, and sort of shifting gears again, where, where do you find hope? And, and because I don't, I don't want this to be a, oh, gosh, the problem is you say near impossible. So let's let's talk about the near. Yes. And I and I said it feels near impossible, meaning it creates that that difficulty of how to enter into how I'm going to change my relationship with alcohol. Right. But feeling near impossible and being impossible are not the same thing. Also, nothing is impossible with God. And um, I hate some Jesus. Well, I hate if my I hate if this has felt negative. It has just felt like a lot of the conversation has moved toward naming the problem. Right. But um, my work is actually incredibly positive. I mean, I love being a coach in part because I literally watch people blossom and change their relationship with alcohol. I see people begin to implement these uh, ways and practices of removing alcohol, even just from a coping seat, right? Um, Some of the people that show up in my practice, they don't want to quit drinking. They're just aware that they're using it to cope and they want to change that. And um, I don't have statistics, but like, I, I would feel confident saying 100% of the people I work with are able to end a four-week practice and say, yeah, I don't feel like alcohol is strong holding my life anymore. I feel open. I feel awake. I feel able to connect with people in a different way. And for some of them, that is complete sobriety. For some of them, that is not, right? So really revolutionary things can happen when we begin to change how that functions in our life. I'm also really passionate about saying that um, whatever you you do right now to start matters, right? You don't have to to literally quit drinking today. What if it meant that you just listened to this podcast and the fact that you were open to listening to a podcast that talked about these things? That is in and of itself a cognitive shift, right? If you began to just care for yourself every time you woke up and didn't feel great about what you did the night before, that in and of itself would be a radical shift toward loving yourself and toward changing your relationship with alcohol and getting out of that spiral. Um, I actually think that my work is based in hope. It's based in the hope that you can change, right? Um, which that can sometimes be a, a hard thing to say in Christian cultures because sometimes Christian cultures are like, you can't change. It's just, you know, It's just your sin nature. And I really can't believe that because of the fact that I watch people change for a living. And um, yes, there are challenges. If this has felt difficult, then 
Yes, that's because it is difficult, but it also gives us the opportunity to build and shape and change our cultures, our practices, and the ways that we love people. So I personally think that this is just like really beautiful work and really, really um, work that, again, is based in the idea that there is abundant life in Jesus Christ that is our birthright. And what I hope for people is that they're able to feel that and experience that. One of the things at St. Martin's that we say every single Sunday is that all are welcome. All are welcome to receive communion. All are welcome to be there. All are just all are welcome. Uh, no, no qualifications with it. But I, I think that it's interesting. All are welcome. But if we believe that Christianity is a journey, then all are welcome. And also all are expected to be on a process of change. I don't think that Jesus wants us all welcomed at the altar and then we're supposed to just stay there where we are. I think we're all expected to be growing and and getting closer to God's love, which um, I hear that in what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, there's such a, an element to me of resurrection. I talk about resurrection as being one of the really primary um, feelings I've had through this experience with myself which was just this idea that I couldn't have, have felt this at the time, but my life just felt really dead. You know, it felt really deadened of joy. To circle back to Brene Brown, she says, you know, when you numb the dark, you numb the light. And I think in a lot of ways, I, I, I have experienced trauma, I have anxiety, I have depression. So I had a lot of dark, right? And I was, you know, I think understandably numbing myself out of the dark, but I was also numbing myself out of the light. And what I have really found is just that I feel like I resurrected in real time. Like, um, you know, on the day of my death, I'm sure it will be beautiful to be greeted by God. But I also am like, kind of feel like I already did that. Like I already have been ushered into a way of life that is um, what I would call, what I hope resurrection to feel like um, in the way that it looks on this side of the veil. And the the process of growth that you illuminate, I think is is beautiful and also immeasurable. And so, you know, what looks like growth and change for me isn't going to look like growth and change necessarily for someone else, because I believe Jesus greets us as we are in the moment where we are, right? And so there's no condition you can be in, in which Jesus is not present with you. And so to go back to one of your earlier comments, Caitlin, about just, you know, you don't have to be looking specifically for anything or, you know, discernment is what it is. That growth is different for every person. And so as a person who really wants to support people in that transformation, I also want to meet them where they are and uh, acknowledge that, that that transformation won't look the same uh, between any two people. So as we wrap this up, I wonder if there's like, two or three takeaways that you could give folks for like how they might pray their way through this, this season. If somebody is really, you know, jiving with this podcast and wants to explore that or has given up alcohol for Lent or, or given up something else for Lent, how might they pray through that? Yeah. I mean, the first thing that I would always say is just that that, that root of self-compassion is really, really transformative. Um, I I keep cursing on this podcast. Is this okay? <laughs> You're in good company. Um, I 
because because I said this in my presentation at your church, but like when I heard that like self care was a part of this process, and then I just needed to like talk to myself differently. I always say I thought it was bullshit until it worked. Like I would be saying these affirmations or these mantras, and I was like, "This is so dumb. Like, what am I doing right now?" And then um, one day I was I was in a spiral, and the the voice I heard in the back of my head was was the positive voice. And I was like, oh, my God, it worked, you know. And so so I would say starting with a way in which you can begin to, even if you're faking it till you make it, be in that seat of self-compassion. Try to figure out when you start to feel that negativity, if you start to feel that negativity, how can I return to the grace of God? How can I stop that spiral and get into my worthiness, my belovedness, whatever that is for you? And I really think prayer can be the base for that. If you can come up with a one-line prayer that is just, you know, God, you are loving of me and you love me right now. You know, if that's all your prayer is, write it on a three by five card, put it in your back pocket. And if you begin to feel that way, especially in relationship to alcohol, pray that prayer and just do that as, as much as you can. And you would be surprised how much you might be able to get yourself out of some of those spirals that are so challenging. And then I would say, um, look into alternative coping mechanisms. It doesn't have to mean that you never use alcohol to cope, but make a list of joy practices and try to do some of them every now and then, right? And it doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't need to be expensive. But what are the things that you kind of always say you're going to do, but you never do them because you're super busy? Because my list's pretty long, right? You know, I'm the person who will live in a really cool city for three years and never do anything anyone ever told me to do because I'm just like super busy right now. And so like whatever that (laughs) list is, like make that list. And if you're feeling down, if you're feeling challenged, if, if whatever that thing is that maybe gives you that itch, try to do one of them. It doesn't matter if you then drink after that, honestly, but just try to start meeting that feeling with anything else. Um, I also tell people, and this is just hyper practical, but like if your modus operandi is to end the day with a beverage, to end the day with a drink, drink anything else right when you get home right? Like when you're trying to shift into evening mode, find a really good mocktail and have a really good mocktail or something that you legitimately enjoy. And again, you'd be surprised how much just neural pathways begin to shift and change because that's a pattern you've adapted. And there's nothing wrong with that. Our brains just love patterns and they're going to want to keep us in patterns because patterns feel safe. So just start to sort of, that's a very light shift into how you can, can, do that. And it's also joyful and fun. Like these are joy practices. These are delicious beverages. These are positive words of affirmation. And the other word I would offer is just that like you can do this. Uh, Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever it is, um, God loves you and plans to keep you like a mother hen nestled along with her brood. That is a perfect way to to end that and springboard us into the Sunday's, the, the gospel. Yeah. Sunday's gospel. Well done. When, Aaron Jean, thank you so much for, for being here. If folks want to hear more from you, where can they find you out in the world? Yes, I have one website now, which I'm very proud of. Um, it's just AaronGeneWard.com. Um, there's a lot there to look at. I have a course. I have 
all sorts of things, you know, go look at all of that. I also have a newsletter I do every Tuesday, totally free. Try to put a little bit of wisdom, contemplation and reflection into that. Um, also I always just want to mention that, um, my work does have a price associated with it because this is my full-time vocation, but I don't turn anyone away. So, uh, don't ever let finances be a reason that you don't receive healing, right? Cause my heart is to, is to help people heal. So, uh, don't let that be a barrier. There's a connect form to reach out. If you have a question, I love, I can research gather for people. I just do that every now and then send a book their way that might meet them exactly where they are. Um, so just reach out, don't be a stranger. And, uh, I hope I connect with some of you soon. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's been a profound joy. Future Caitlin here again. Erin Jean's book is now available for purchase. It's out. It's called Sober Sobriety, and you can pick up a copy wherever books are sold. Um, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about Erin Jean's ministry. Uh, shoot me a line. Let me know what you thought of this podcast, what you thought of Erin Jean's message, and let me know what you want to hear more of, what you might be interested in. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a podcast of St. Martin's in the Fields in Columbia, South Carolina. Pay us a visit here on campus, come worship with us on Sundays, or visit us online at smifsc.com. Be sure to like, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your podcast channels, and leave a comment. Let us know if you like this episode, if you like this format. We want to hear from you. Let us go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.